our scripture passage for today is Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due to them. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Like a seed planted in our hearts, Lord, and also prepare the soil and nurture that seed. Let that germinate, <coughs> grow, bear fruit, not only for our own lives, but for our neighborhoods, our communities, the whole world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. World War II, German-occupied France. Imagine a, a very small house in a very small town in the arid mountains of southern France. It's night, peaceful. There's a knock at the door, sort of unusual. A woman goes and answers the door, and there, standing in front of her at the door, is a German refugee a Jewish-German refugee from the war. Some of you have heard me tell the story more than once of this little town called Les Chambon in France, um, this remarkable village, and I'm going to return to it again for this sermon. I think we still have more to learn from their witness. And for those of you who haven't ever heard of this village, you're in for a treat. <laughs> 
I think we need their witness in order to understand what Paul's talking about this morning in the passage in Romans 13. Lake Chambon was, was small, very small, 500 people. That's how many people were in this little village. It was hardly on anyone's radar. It wasn't really on uh, Hitler's radar. Uh, it wasn't on Francis' radar either, really. That did give them an enormous advantage because it meant that they could kind of lay low during the war. You know, we imagine World War II as sort of engulfing Europe, but there were these areas that it didn't really, really touch. People could kind of lay low, avoid the conflict, live out their lives. And that's what Les Chambon was doing. They were just living their lives, farming, taking care of their kids, doing what ordinary people do. They could continue to raise their crops, they could continue to go to church, but then on this one night, when this young refugee shows up at the door of the Trachma household, Magda Trachma, the woman who answered the door, could have said, I'm sorry, no thank you, we can't help you. We're a poor, small village, we just don't have the resources, and we can't endanger our children. But that's not what happened. That's not what Magda did that night, and it is not what the town did. As another 5,000 refugees came through that town and were rescued from the Nazis. What they did was risky, absolutely illegal, and they did it in full view of German-backed French forces. We're going to talk this morning about why that little village helps us understand what is going on in Romans 13. Romans 13 actually is going to help us understand why they made that decision. It might seem unusual if you're to come across Romans 13 to connect it to what's going on in Le Chambon, especially those first seven verses. Some of you have heard these first seven verses before, and you may have heard them in a maybe not great context. Because those first seven verses that talk about the role of the government have been sort of notorious. They've been used to um, sort of prop up some sometimes, frankly, pretty heinous things that governments have done in the past. They've chosen to do awful things and oppress certain groups of people. And when anybody cries out about it, they go to Romans 13 and say, look, Paul says we're allowed to act this way. We're allowed to do this. So maybe that's how you've come across Romans 13 in the past. But if we read it in context, we see a full picture of the Christian in the public world. And the word for this is politics. You know, they, um, they say uh, the two things you're not supposed to talk about at dinner are uh, religion and politics, and I'm going to do both. I'm going to do exactly both for us this morning. So let's just figure out what Paul is actually saying. Essentially, Paul is saying you should pay your taxes. He uses pretty theological language, but he's saying, look, it's a good idea to pay taxes. The Roman Empire wasn't always hostile to Jews and to Christians. They were at times, that's true, 
but they weren't always. At this particular point in time, Nero, who's infamous for uh, literally burning Christians as candles, as light, um, he's quite young at this time. And so at this point in his life, he, he hasn't become the heinous sort of monster that we know him to be. Uh, he's still being trained um, to become an emperor. And frankly, the Roman Empire, there's pockets of it where it's not that bad to live there. Uh, there's a fair amount of prosperity. Tarsus was very prosperous where Paul grew up. Um, part of the reason they were prosperous is because uh, order and peace were kept. Uh, trade was fair. Um, people who were uh, evil actors were kept in check. These kinds of things. And Paul is essentially saying, follow the ordinary civil order. It's a good idea. It's a good idea to pay the taxes. It's a good idea to follow the rules. A lot of these folks are just trying to maintain roads. They're just trying to make sure trade happens okay. They're just trying to make sure people aren't murdered and get away with it. And it's a good idea to follow through on this kind of stuff. His rationale is interesting. He basically says that God has a unique relationship with anyone who's in power. Their power is not distinct from God. God is far too powerful to let anyone act on their own. And so if they have power, somehow God has given them power and we should listen to it. We should, we should be okay with that. Paul takes all the mystique, all the semi-independent religious power out of Rome, and he says, it's all God's power. But he is not saying that Rome is always right. And he's not saying that any power is always right. He says, uh, in, in this passage, he says they have the power of the sword, which is the power of execution. That's literally the same sword that will separate Paul's head from his body when he gets to Rome. He's not saying that that's okay. He's not saying it was okay for them to do that to him. Of course he's not saying that. There are plenty of places in the Bible, especially the New Testament, where the follower of Jesus is at odds with the state. In this particular context, Paul's larger point is this. There's a new relationship we have with the world, including the state. In Romans 8, he says, you have nothing to fear. Nothing can separate you from God's love, including the sword. So naturally, people are going to read that and they're going to say, if I have nothing to fear, why do I have to listen to them at all? What would be the point in doing anything they say? Why pay taxes even if, if nothing can separate me from God's love? And so it's possible that he probably had a group of Christians who said, we don't need to obey at all because we have nothing to fear. For the first time in history, in fact, there's a group of people in the world who are not, obey, who are not motivated to obey the state out of fear. But they make up their own minds about whether to obey out of conscience. And what Paul wants here is to see them killed, not because they didn't pay taxes, but because they loved Jesus and they loved other people, which is what will happen to Paul. So he's, he's not saying you're never going to face threat. You're never going to be vulnerable. He's saying uh, be persecuted for the right reason. Be persecuted for the right reason. Don't waste your life 
getting killed because you didn't pay taxes. That's how Paul Love is the all-important context around Romans 13. It's right before it, and it's right after it. And conveniently, whenever it's used by politicians especially, those parts are left out. The part about not retaliating when your enemy attacks you. The part about overcoming evil with good. The part about saying all of the law is summed up in loving your neighbor. That's the bread between the Romans 13 sandwich. And it needs to be included in this passage. <clears throat> By the mercies of God, these people have become indescribably free. Free in a way no one's ever been free before. Free even, even from the fear of death. Not even their unfaithfulness could separate them from God's love, the strongest thing in the universe. So what would give, what would now guide their behavior if not fear? Paul says it's all love. So as I said, he talks about loving neighbor, loving enemy, not retaliating, actively doing good in the midst of evil. Paul says this is what you are like in the world, which is precisely what Jesus taught. This is your identity in the world, and yes, this is your politics. So before we come back to Le Chambon, I want to um, sort of bring this into our context. A friend of mine sent me a, um, an op-ed this week. You know, in newspapers, they write things called op-eds. It's an opinion. Um, somebody writes an opinion, and it was an opinion about a guy, by a guy who uh, grew up in the church, his dad was pastor, and has since stopped going to church, and he misses it. He, he wishes he could go back, but he can't. He can't go back because he feels like um, church has, he's moved away from church and church itself has changed. And he goes through all the different ways he feels like it's changed. But there was one sentence that really jumped out at me. He says, I began to realize that being a Democrat or a Republican, not being a Christian, was what drove the beliefs and attitudes of many Christians, perhaps including me. The irony of, of his op-ed is by the end of it, he advocates for a church. He wants a church. He wants to bring his daughter to a church. But the kind of church he wants is the kind of church that supports how he's been formed in a new way, with his new version of politics. There's two ways to read this op-ed. One is a failure of the church, and the other is he's just moved away from Christianity. Perhaps both are right. There's not enough to give us, not enough information in the op-ed to tell us. But what we can say is that this statement about people's identities, people's beliefs and opinions being formed more, say, by a political party, that's true. People identify more deeply with a political platform than they do with Christianity. That's a fact. I've, I've preached through two presidential elections now. We're coming up on a third. Yay. Um, and I've seen it. I've seen how hard it is. And that's precisely what's going on. It's a matter of identity. What are we? And wh who's the failure? Whose failure is that? Is that the church's failure? Is that an individual's failure? I don't think it's helpful to answer that question. 
I think it's what is helpful is to look ahead and say, what are we going to do in this next one? And what are we going to do about our own identities? Magda Trachme, the woman who opened that door to the Jewish refugee, knew what was at stake for that quiet little village. She knew it was against the law to harbor Jews. Not just Jews, other refugees as well, but mainly Jews. But she did it anyway because she lived her life according to the mercies of God. God's love was the foundation of her existence. How could she not extend that same love to someone standing on her doorstep? It wasn't just Magda who made that decision. As I said, this was a village of 500 people harboring 5,000 Jews. And astonishingly, they let the French officials know what they were doing. This is the German-backed, Nazi-backed French officials. Let them know exactly what they were doing. And, um, and then the officials would drive up and show up, and they'd say, okay, where are the Jews? Show us where the Jews are that you're harboring. And they'd say, we don't know Jews. We only know human beings. We can't distinguish between them. How they managed to do this is not a secret. They weren't specially talented. They had a lot of, they had a lot of like um, tactics. Okay, we could talk about the tactics, but if underlying all of it was this idea of an identity. Their identity was stronger than their identity as people from France. Their identity was stronger than the German ideology of National Socialism. Their identity was stronger than the conservatism of the time or the progressive ideas of the time. Their identity was stronger than rural or urban identities. They were Christian. They were a particular kind of Christian, actually. They were descended from a group called the Huguenots. And the Huguenots were severely persecuted in France um, for multiple generations, multiple massacres. And so they had that in their memory. That was part of it. But they were also steeped in the way of Jesus. They knew the Sermon on the Mount better than they did the Pledge of Allegiance or whatever the French equivalent was. Before all this, before all this happened, before this person showed up on the doorstep, they looked like a typical French town. And they were. And that is Paul's point. We don't have to like try to distinguish ourselves in other ways. We can just live our lives. We can raise our kids, we can develop friendships, we can contribute to our community. That's fine. But when somebody comes along who needs help, when love comes in front of us, and it's costly love, and it's required of us, we make the decision to love always. I can think of many other examples of this. The longer you're in this congregation, the longer you'll keep hearing me talk about Le Chambon, but there are other examples of this. Um, in Paul's time, there were multiple examples. We talked a little bit about this. We talked about how slaves were brought into the family of God and given a family that they were legally not allowed to have anymore. That's one example. Another example is women who refused to marry. And because they were refused to marry, they were completely cut off society, completely cut off from their family and they were brought into the family of God as well. 
We could talk about the infants that were left to die outside of exposure and how Christians uh, organized to round them up and bring them up in the family of God. And we could talk about the way whenever there was a major plague, a major illness or something like that, the Christians would rush into those situations to care for the dying. More recent examples. Sure, I have some of those as well. Um, some of you may remember the Arab Spring in 2013. The Arab Spring was a very violent time. In about 48 hours in northern Africa, especially in Egypt, um, about 100 uh, Coptic churches and ministries were targeted. Um, many, many, many people were massacred and killed. The idea was to start, it was an intentional idea to start a civil war in northern Africa by doing this uh, concentrated attack on Christian congregations. Um, and so they were attacked, people died, no one retaliated. Not a single person retaliated. Um, they took all the wind out of the sails of this idea of the Civil War. What's amazing about that is there was no bishop. Nobody said, okay, here's the plan. Because the plan had already been set out. The plan had been written a long time ago by Jesus. And he's told us to love our enemies. Thank God we don't have it as bad. We don't. Sometimes we fret about polarization and division in our country. We don't have it as bad. But for some, for some people in our country, there's a real advantage to having Americans turn on each other. Being divided, hating, having enemies is a positive development for some in political power. They would like to encourage and to deepen and to grow certain identities, like the identity of a Democrat, the identity of a Republican, whatever that may be. They would like those identities to be stronger than being a Christian. But we don't need our churches that support the identities that we bring here. What none of us need is to go to church and to be further confirmed in an identity like a political party or something like that. What we rather need are churches that teach us how to pray for God's kingdom on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And how to live into that kingdom today how to have our minds transformed so that we can discern God's will and not the will of some politician. It's gonna take, one of the things it's gonna take is formation. You know that old saying, you are what you eat? So uh, some, some of us have phones, and it, when this fascinating thing on the phone is something called a feed, it feeds us. Usually it's a news feed. And so what's happening is as we're being fed on news, whatever particular algorithm that's shaped for us, it's feeding us and it's forming us in a certain way. We are being formed. If it's, maybe it's the car radio. Maybe it's a television station or whatever. Yes, it's good to be informed, but think about that word for a second. To be informed? We're being formed inwardly by what we receive. That could be a phone, that could, whatever. That, that could be lots of ways. It could just be the regular old newspaper. But we're being formed. We need to counter that formation in other ways. 
We need to counter that formation with the words of Paul, with the words of Jesus, and we need to remind each other of these words, remind each other of these teachings. We need to be fed in other ways. Another thing it's going to mean is some practical, old, taking care and loving each other. Uh, our congregation is plenty diverse. It's diverse enough for us to practice love. And, and if we can do it here, we can do it with the rest of the world. Increasingly, the church is going to look more like our church. Um, by that, I mean diverse churches where not everybody agrees with each other, where not everybody has the same politics, where not everybody even has all the same theology. This is a little picture of what our neighborhoods are like, what our communities are like. And so a really good place to start is just to care for and love one another here. Last, and I'm going to talk about that more next week because Paul does. So Paul, in the last chapters 14 and 15, that's his main focus, is how is he going to get this congregation to uh, love each other? And then last of all, I think we need to remember that we are above all, above any other identity, we are God's children. What that means is that we're forgiven and redeemed from the past so that the past no longer has a hold on us, but we're free from the past. It also means that the future is taken care of, and the future is not a threat to us, and we don't have to live in fear of the future and what might happen. And what that does is it frees us in the present, completely free in the present. Free to do what? Free to do whatever we want? No, free to do what we were built to do, what we were meant to do, what we were designed to do. Free to love. Free to love our enemies. Free to love our friends. Free to love our partners. Free to even love our kids. Um, free to love the people around us. Freedom to do these things. That's what we were made for. This is who we are, because it's precisely who God is. God is love. And God showed us his love by living for us, by dying for us, and then being raised from the dead so that he could walk with us through all this stuff together. This is our calling. This is our politics. Amen. We come to you this morning as your children your beloved children. And Lord, we ask you to protect us from evil and form us in our deepest, most inward parts. Form us in the way of love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing once again at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.